Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This is the Action Network Podcast. On the way, and it is good. All right, here we go. Spreading the court. Ten seconds remaining. They just got to throw it under the basket. Under the basket. It's down to seven seconds. It's the truth for the win. Good. He did it. A miracle. Hutchins. Double order. Hit that one from the parking lot. Shock it off in college basketball. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. What's up, Degenerate Nation? Welcome to the Action Network podcast. This is the Sweet 16 college basketball betting preview. I'm stuck in with me as always is Mike Randall and Colin Wilson. We had a crazy first week, gentlemen. Are you ready to dive into the Sweet 16? Recording live next to the praying hands of Oral Roberts, but pulling for the other team. I'm not I'm not messing with the mojo this week. Like I, I bet Florida and they completely no-showed in the last 10 minutes of that game. They froze up. Oral Roberts got hot. I'm not taunting the praying hands against my alma mater, Arkansas, this week. Woo pig suey. Randall? It's about figuring out which teams are ready to die and fade away like Tennessee and which teams are still going to be resilient, even though they haven't been playing well like a Villanova. That's the the beauty of this tournament. We've had great coaches. We've had mid-majors. We have upset. We still got a 15 seed. I mean, it's given us everything we could want and more. Yep. Look, one of the most difficult things about this year was – trying to figure out how good certain conferences were. There was a lack of non-conference play. Some of the metrics might have been skewed by certain conferences playing against each other. And I think we saw that with the Big Ten. Maybe the ACC was a bit overrated. We'll get to the Pac-12. Was was the Pac-12 severely underrated? You don't want to take too much from one weekend. But again, we have to take something from what we've seen so far with these non-conference results. And some of these results in the Pac-12, the Big Ten are pretty glaring. Look, we're going to have, we have a loaded show. We're going to get through all eight matchups, four on Saturday, four on Sunday. We're going to bring in the three-man weave crew for their three favorite picks of the weekend. We will get into some futures talk, but before we get there, just what's uh, your favorite memory or no, or something you just want to bitch about? And Kyle, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you. And then also, Rutgers, at least they covered twice for us. Man, oh, so close to coming through against Houston. Yeah, the Rutgers one really hurt because the game went exactly as I thought it would. It was sloppy. 
They like the rock fight. And then down the stretch, not boxing out on defensive rebounds, turning it over. Geo Baker, the shot maker, that's his name here in Jersey, just dribbles the ball off his leg. It just was a winnable, winnable game for them. Listen, still had a nice win the first round, played tough against Houston, but that's one they should have had. It was nice to see teams like in Alabama return to their form. Oregon is scalding hot, even though they got eliminated by Oregon State. That was really impressive. So all around, just a lot of things went the way I thought they would. And we still have teams that were fading, like a Baylor that was fading. Now, all of a sudden, rejuvenated and playing really, really well. So it's going to be interesting because it's very dangerous. Teams like Baylor and Creighton, who people thought and kind of said maybe they're going the wrong way, I thought are, are refreshed and replenished here for the Sweet 16. Colin, your main takeaway or something you want to yell about from the first week, and then obviously you can take some time to uh, gloat about your hogs. Woo, pig suey. <laughs> Woo, pig suey. Well, let me go ahead and get that out of the way. I'm glad that we beat Texas Tech, an old Southwest Conference team. That's a game. That is a market that screamed Texas Tech was going to win that game. Arkansas, the higher seed, is a dog. You know, that was a tough one, and I'm, and I'm glad that the Razorbacks were able to pull that out. Good for Eric Musselman. Good for the program. I'm behind you 100% all the way, and – to get to the final four and play in the final four. I mean, there's been all this talk about the PAC 12. How about the old Southwest conference? Arkansas may have to go through Baylor and Houston to get to the national championship game. So I'll be keeping my eye out for that for somebody that grew up in, in my, in my single digit years in the Southwest conference. But, you know, I have been impressed with Loyola's execution. One of the most major uh, takeaways from the entire weekend is how they are just executing on offense and defense. Like there's, I don't, I don't think they've made a mistake the entire tournament. Uh, you know, Florida State just absolutely dominating Colorado. We're going to talk about that here with Michigan. UCLA's guard play able to hold off Abilene Christian was a, a big note. I'm glad I'm not losing any more money on UConn. Uh, I'm glad I pumped them up for a month, and then they just completely got deflated. Uh, and here we are with Villanova completely pivoting after the Colin Gillespie injury about what their offensive identity is. And now here they are in the Sweet 16. So I got a player prop for that coming up. Yeah, my I mean my biggest takeaway has to be Illinois. It was my 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 darling, my baby, and they just I never thought they had a chance in that game after they got behind. I never had a glimmer of hope. And the Big Ten was apparently overrated. I Loyola Chicago, I had some questions about because the valley was down. You didn't get a lot of non-conference results, but man, they were almost flawless and really sucked the life out of Illinois from start to finish. So People that want to get involved in a future now, we have basically of our futures portfolio, we're going to have a chance, I think, to take a shot at Gonzaga, right? We have Michigan and Florida State left. We have Alabama left. Um, so we're going to have a chance to take a shot at those. But if you were investing in one future right now, who would you take? I, I think I might go, you know, I think there is some value in Houston, how healthy is Jerome? I, I don't know, but I, I don't mind their path. But I, I think I would go with Baylor. I think from what I've seen, and we're going to talk about them, at you know if you can get them plus 450, plus 500, pre-COVID, I had them neck and neck with Gonzaga. Like depending on the night, depending on the performance, one of them went to one, one of them went to two. They were neck and neck, and then the rest of the field was five, six points behind. From what I saw, I think Baylor is back. You know, they, were, they had three weeks off from COVID. They weren't really practicing. Their defensive efficiency fell off a cliff. But I think – what I've seen, they had a week off before the tournament. They're going to have another week off now, but it looks like their legs are back. So I think there's actually, believe it or not, some value with Baylor. I like their path. I think they're going to beat Villanova, which we'll get to next. I think that they're just like a basically – and I love Arkansas. I have Arkansas get to the Final Four. 
but I had some questions about Baylor as one part of it. I think that Baylor is just like a little bit better of a version of Arkansas. And then, you know, you would get presumably Houston or in the final four. So I like their path. So I, I wouldn't mind taking some Baylor plus 450 plus 500 based on what I saw last weekend. Randall, let me throw it to you. If you were to take one future right now, where are you going? It's still Bama 10 to 1. I think if this tournament is played 10 times, I think Bama wins it at least twice. I think they go, they're going to get by UCLA, no problem. Then I think they're going to play either Michigan, who's shorthanded, or FSU, who they're better than. They're just a better version of them. And yeah, they're going to have to play probably Gonzaga. And that's going to be the game. But they get by that, then you can hedge in the finals. I like Bama's defense. They're, still, they're second right now in Ken Palm and adjusted defense efficiency. They're totally healthy. Bruner's back. Primo's back. They can drive. They can shoot it. Uh, they have that flammable ability where they can hit like 15 to 18 threes, no problem. So a uh, 10 to one odds plus a thousand, I'll still stay with Bama. Colin, you going, you're going hogs to, to get a, <laughs> keep, keep getting on the good side of Musselman. Well, this isn't uh, I'm sorry if Eric Musselman is your first time to listen, but this isn't a fanboy podcast. This is a gambling investing podcast and the best value out there right now is Loyola Chicago to make the final four at plus 160 or better because their projected path. Usually when you see these like to win the region bets, it's better just to do a rollover parlay, but not in the case of Loyola Chicago. If you take them against Oregon State, their money line, and then what their projected spread is against Houston, that number should be around plus 140. Plus 160 is widely available, and there's a couple of plus 200s out there. So Loyola Chicago, just to make the final four, has the best value on the board for winning the region. All right, let's move on to these games. March Madness has finally returned, and there's only one way to celebrate. Let's get gambling. 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 We'll start on Saturday. We'll go in chronological order. We'll start with the aforementioned Loyola Chicago Ramblers and Sister Jean. Uh, they are six and a half, seven point favorites against Oregon State over under 125 and a half. Look, I mean, the, you have to pand it to the Beavers. They have gone from needing to win the Pac-12 tournament to now into the Sweet 16 after beating Tennessee and Oklahoma State by double digits. They've won five straight games, all as underdogs, I think, of five or six points or more. It seemingly came out of nowhere. You know, it's a it's an experienced team. They have some size inside. They grind it offensively. They like to go into the post. They really live at the line and on the offensive glass. But the team really goes as their guards go. I mean, Ethan Thompson's been – Incredible senior point guard, and Jared Lucas has been red hot from three. They have benefited from some three-point luck, I want to say. I mean, they've just been really this – this doesn't profile as an elite shooting team. And if you look over their past five games during their five-game winning streak, they have shot 45 of 107 from three. That's over 42%. And their opponents have shot just 30 of 119. That's a tad over 25%. So can they keep that up? I'm not sure. I, I don't necessarily love this matchup for Oregon State. How do they score besides keep raining from three, which I don't think they could do against an excellent Willow Chicago perimeter defense that's very disciplined. When they get out in transition, they don't do it often. They're very good. With Loyola Chicago, elite transition defense. They don't, they don't allow anything in transition. Number one in college basketball in allowing transition. Now, the fewest transition opportunities of any team in the country, Oregon State. What else did they do? Offensive glass. Ah, can't do that against Loyola Chicago. Number two in defensive rebounding percentage. Oregon State, they get to the line a lot. Ah, can't do that against Loyola Chicago. They rank sixth in free throw tempo defense. They defend without fouling. So I just, I'm going to find it hard for Oregon State to consistently score unless they just maintain this crazy shooting, which I think is more 
likely to regress for them having a bad shooting, especially against this Loyola defense. The other side of the ball, I think Crutway can have some success against a pretty vulnerable defense at the rim. Oregon State will run a ton of matchup zones, funky zone looks. Loyola didn't see a lot of zone during the regular season, but they did against Georgia Tech, and they were fine. They have a week to prepare for this kind of unique Oregon State defense. So it's just – it's hard for it. – I see many more opportunities for Loyola Chicago to score than Oregon State. I make this number around six. I don't really have much interest in laying six or seven in the game game with a total of 125, but I like the under. I like the team total under for Oregon State, too. I think this is a grinder. Both these teams are outside the top 300 in adjusted tempo. You're not going to see many transition opportunities, and I think it's just a good matchup for this Loyola team who should be well-prepared on both ends of the floor. Randall, I'll throw it to you first. What do you see here? I have doubts that Loyola can cover the six and a half. All the reasons you said, Stuck, it's going to be a slower game. It's going to be a, a slop game inside with the defenses, and Tinkle's going to do a, a nice job there. I think the reaction is a little too much on the win over Illinois. Uh, listen, Ramblers are great. They won by 11. They got up early. But I also think they benefited from some poor decisions by Underwood. I mean, they were way too passive with Coburn, afraid of foul trouble, just like Crutwig was. But Crutwig was able to do stuff. They put Io DeSumo in a corner. I mean, you're basically your player of the year, Ken, one of the top guys, was standing in the corner doing nothing for the majority of this game until it was out of control. Ethan Thompson and Lucas are going to attack the basket. I think Alatiche and Roman Silva, who's 7-1, and Kalu, who's 6-10. I think they have enough bodies they can throw at Crutwig to bother him a little bit. And listen, this is still a, a Loyola team that struggled twice against an extremely shorthanded Drake team. They did lose at, at Indiana State. They did lose to Wisconsin. I know that was early in the year. But what I don't get is that people are looking at Loyola Chicago through the prism of they just destroyed Illinois, but they're looking at Oregon State through the prism of what they did earlier in the year. Right now, I have no reason to believe that Oregon State's going to slow down with the shooting. I think both teams are going to slop it up a little bit. And basically, I'm grabbing the six and a half because I think it's a very close game. I don't think the market is giving Oregon State enough credit. And I think they've now put Loyola Chicago in like this almost Baylor-Gonzaga level where like they're going to dominate every game. That's not going to happen. And Loyola Chicago may get through. I just think the six and a half is too much. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, yeah, I, I do think that you're right from a, a buy low, sell high perspective. It's like you're selling Loyola potentially at its peak, and people aren't giving Oregon State as much credit as they are Loyola. People aren't as familiar with Oregon State. But by the way, Oregon State winning the Pac-12 tournament now looks a lot more impressive after we've seen for the Pac-12 in the NCAA tournament. Double-digit seeds in the Sweet 16 have gone 15-15-1 against the spread in the Sweet 16 since 2005 per Action Labs. We've seen four double-digit seeds reach the Final Four over that span, none lower than an 11 seed. We had George Mason in 2006, 11 seed, 11 seed VCU, 2011, 10 seed Syracuse, 2016, 11 seed Little Chicago, 2018. Basically, any since 2005, any against the spread metric you're looking at for these double-digit seeds in this round against the spread is about 500. Cap the matchups, but I don't hate your analysis. But I will say we do have someone on this podcast that seemingly has put Little Chicago on that pedestal that is in love with the Ramblers. So Colin, I assume you might give us the other side of this. Yeah. I mean, I am taking, I have taken the Ramblers and I like them to cover this game and, and you guys, you know, know me, I look at free throw rates. Oregon state has one of the worst defensive free throw rates in the nation outside the top 300. And that falls into a loyal Chicago team that shoots a really good free throw percentage. And, and then on the other side of that, you know, loyal Chicago is sixth in defensive free throw rate. So I just don't expect, Oregon State to be at the line very often. Loyola should be there a ton because 
they are an interior team. I know that they've been hitting from three against Georgia Tech. I know they've been hitting from three against Illinois. But, you know, the Ramblers are running through Crutwig and a handful of other players that are 6'6 to 6'8 that are just dominating the interior. Oregon State is 238th in defensive two-point percentage. So I just – I don't know how they're going to handle Loyola down low. If you look at some of these games that have been played, there just has been some terrible shooting performances. Tennessee made just 526 attempted threes. Oklahoma State sent Oregon State to the line 35 times. And and Oregon State made 32 free throws. I mean, that's just not going to happen again. Uh, Oklahoma State shot 28% from the field. That's just not going to happen again. Uh, Some of this stuff is not sustainable. So, you know, if you throw out a regular season game against Utah, Oregon State's best defensive points per possession on the season has come in the last two games. So it's not sustainable. Areas that have improved for Oregon State, defensive two-point percentage, kind of opponent, two-point percentage, not much free throw rate. Uh, You know, I mean, these are not things that are making me want to buy Oregon State. One item that is soaring for Loyola is defensive free throw rate. I mentioned that they were six. That has done nothing but increase the entire year. Loyola is going to get everything they want in the interior, and Oregon State is going to foul a ton. Loyola is a top 103-point defense, and they have a soaring defensive free throw rate. I'm taking Loyola six and a half. I'm taking a player prop on Ethan Thompson under 17 points. He isn't going to the free throw line 16 times again like he did against Oklahoma State. He's only pulled three offensive rebounds in the entire month of March. So if he averages four shots from three in a game and he hits just 31%, all of his points are going to have to come from the interior. And Loyola is going to shut that down. So I like Ethan Thompson under 17 points. I like Loyola to cover here, dominate from the inside out. Yeah, one thing to note is Oregon State does love to live on the offensive glass. They attack it pretty aggressively, and it's a big source of their offense. Although, like I said, is number two in defensive rebounding rate. So I'm not sure how much success they'll have. But that that means that you can get out and transition against them, and their their transition D is bad. I think they're 19% call per synergy. Loyal rarely gets out in transition. They're a snail. I think they're outside the top 330 in transition frequency. But when they do, they are really good. So they might have some prime transition opportunities here to get some easy buckets. I just tend to think the number's right. I'm going under here. Potentially Oregon State team total under. I think the regression monster is going to get Oregon State. But by the way, Oregon State's defense at matchup zones are they give up some three looks, but they they contest really well. They just they their three-point defense all season has been really strong. Let's move on to the second game, 5-15 Eastern on CBS. Villanova, the five seed against Baylor. The Bears are seven-point favorites over under. 142 total has risen a few points. Look, I doubted Villanova the first two games of the tournament, and they Jay Wright burned me. I mean, Jay Wright was 16-2 and two, his past 18 NCAA tournament games. That includes two national titles. You know, they... The first game against Withrop, I was really impressed. I mean, no, no one has had an answer for Robinson Earl. I mean, he's he's put up 40 combined, I think, in the first two games. He was the first player since Dwayne Wade in 2003, in the 2003 Elite Eight, to have at least 20 points, 10 rebounds, five assists, and three blocks. Uh, he's been unstoppable. In, against North Texas, look, they were down eight, I think close to midway through the first half. Jay Wright made a great defensive adjustment. They started doubling Hamlet. But they created a lot of mismatches with their guards in the low block. North Texas really didn't have an answer for Robinson Earl or Samuels. But I just think that 
look, I mean, Villanova, they have they, North Texas. I think they ran out of gas too. I mean, they're just a crazy two week stretch for them. But if I look at this matchup here and we, if I assume Baylor is back and I give some credit to Villanova for what they've shown, I just don't see how Villanova can win this game. I would make this eight and a half. Now I have to give some credit to Wright. What he's going to come up with with five days to prepare. I have to just leave some chance that Baylor isn't at a 100%. I mean, it was only two games against athletically inferior teams in Hartford and Wisconsin. So I threw, I personally threw Baylor at a money line parlay with Alabama, which we'll get to later. And, but I, I think Villanova's in trouble here. I, their defense is really weak, especially on the perimeter. That is not what you want to be against Baylor. You can't just key on one player either. I think Baylor has like four or five rotational players that are over 40% from three. I think Baylor can athletically overwhelm Villanova's guards. Plus they have Mark Vidal who can match up with Robinson Earl. So it's, and look, Baylor can attack the offensive glass and then, then attack a, a weak interior Villanova defense. I think Villanova is really going to miss Gillespie here to create their offense. This isn't North Texas. This isn't Winthrop. This is one of the two best teams in the country when they're right. And I think they are right now. So while I respect right, I can't see Villanova really winning this game. I think it's going to be tough. They're going to have to slow it up. They're going to have to make a ton of threes. It will be a high variance game with a lot of three pointers, but they're going to miss Gillespie. By the way, these teams played last year. Baylor won, I think, 87-78 in Myrtle Beach. Gillespie had, I think, 29 points. He was unstoppable. They're really going to miss him here. I think Baylor's athleticism shines. They overwhelm the Villanova guards, and uh, they get plenty of looks from three, which they could certainly make. They're number one in the nation in three-point percentage at 41.5% or something like that. So I I think this is a a good matchup for a trending-up Baylor team. And uh, I think the market is agreeing with this line has been on the rise all week. Randall, what do you see here? Yeah, Marcus, with it per the action app, it was up to like 65% of the bets on Nova, now 53%, but 94% of the money's on Baylor. I do not see how Villanova wins this game. I love throwing Baylor in the money line parlays, like you said, Stug. I cannot see Villanova. The the money that's coming in, the bets that are coming in on them are, are based on Jay Wright, great coach, two titles. Guys, they don't have their starting point guard against Baylor, who is number three in the country in defensive turnover percentage. I know they did fine against Winthrop. That's a different level, a lower level team. Then they played North Texas. I get it. Like you said, much like Abilene Christian, they had the big win and then they sort of faded in the second game. That is not going to happen here. Baylor shoots 41.5% from three-point range as a team. That is number one. I think they got past their hurdle. I think where people are underselling how deep they are. I mean, Matthew Mayer came in, and he was fantastic there against Wisconsin. The line, for some reason, with Baylor is not reflective of who they are right now. It's still the team that struggled against Iowa State when they returned from COVID. It was like six and a half against Wisconsin. Right now, it's up to seven and a half. I wouldn't even think about Villanova unless it was like nine, nine and a half points. The question is, can they keep it single digits? Jay Wright, fantastic job. Robinson Earl has played out of his mind. They are going to have guys that can limit him. They're going to have to rebound. They're going to have to shoot incredibly well from three Villanova. And I do not see it happening against a Baylor team that I think is now ready to roll. So I'm easily giving the points here. Very comfortable with Baylor winning this game outright. Con, are you going to make it a podcast consensus? Well, I do think Baylor's going to win this game, but what I was looking for in this was I wanted an under because the knock on the Bears was a defensive defensive efficiency was just falling off. And Baylor ended the season on seven straight games with a defensive efficiency rating of 97 or worse. Came out against Hartford. Hartford was 78.7. Wisconsin, 89.6. 
So Baylor's really kind of struck up the defense again. Uh, they posted their third best defensive free throw rate of the season against Wisconsin. Uh, Villanova, you know, clipped their highest offensive efficiency of the season against North Texas. Uh, so I'm not sure if they're missing Gillespie, but I, you have to give Jay Wright credit for kind of pivoting the offense and going to the high post and feeding Jermiah Robinson Earl. Um, you know, the, the, the Providence game after Gillespie was out was the worst shooting performance of the season. Uh, but if there's one area that's really been affected by the Gillespie injury, it's pace. North Texas was the slowest game of the season. Baylor also just played their slowest game of the season too against Wisconsin. A lot of that was Wisconsin's offense, but I completely agree with the total being so low. I was, I was shocked that it was as low as it was because Ken Palm projects this to be a 150 point game. Uh, I was looking for something around 142 came out 140. Uh, so there was no play on there, but it is getting steam on the over in the market. I'm going to let that run. I'll probably fire within a couple hours before game time. I like the under here because these are two teams that are progressively getting slower. Villanova's new offense is feeding the post and not shooting threes. Um, these teams, you know, Baylor doesn't send you to the line for any free points. So I like the under in this game, but I'm willing to let the market take it a little bit higher uh, before I fire. Fair enough. This is Action Network podcast producer Matt Mitchell here to tell you our friends at BetMGM have a great new sign-up offer for our listeners, a $600 risk-free first bet. Here's how it works. If you don't already have an account at BetMGM, just sign up, make your first deposit, and place that initial wager. If the bet wins, you get all the money. If it doesn't win, BetMGM will refund you in free bets up to $600. It's that simple. Just click on the link in this episode description to get started. BetMGM has been a great podcast partner, and they've got all the features gamblers like us love, like live betting and daily odds boosts, plus they're compatible with BetSync, so when you place a wager at BetMGM, that bet can automatically be tracked in your action app. So open an account today and make your first bet risk-free up to $600. Just click on the link in this episode description to get started. Must be 21 or older and physically located in Michigan, New Jersey, Colorado, Indiana, West Virginia, Iowa, Virginia, Tennessee, Nevada, or Pennsylvania. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado and Nevada, 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-270-7117 in Michigan, 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, or 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia. BetSync not available in Nevada. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. Let's move on to the game that Colin will be most nervous for, and that's Oral Roberts. Hey, look, if you're Oregon State or Arkansas, at least you're playing Oral Roberts and Loyola Chicago on a Saturday, not a Sunday. Oral Roberts, the 15th seed, only the second 15th seed ever to make it to the Sweet 16, joining Florida Gulf Coast. No team without an eagle as a mascot as a 15th seed has made it to the Sweet 16. Florida Gulf Coast actually covered the closing line. I actually middled that game, for those of you following me back a few years ago, um, against Florida. It was beautiful. So Oral Roberts, they're catching 11.5 over under, 158.5. We know about Oral Roberts. Their offense is electric in every sense. You have Max A. Smith, who leads the country in scoring. I think he's averaging 30 points per game over his last nine. And then you have a guy, Kevin O'Banner, who – He's the most efficient pick-and-pop player in the nation. He can step out. I think he's like 45% from three. He's All he's done is score 30 and 28 in the two games in the tournament when they upset Ohio State and Florida. Offense is electric. And, look, they haven't even, it hasn't even been three-point luck in these games, which is a lot of times what you see with these lower seeds. 
I mean, they're just 21 of 65 from three. That's 32.3%. This is a top 20 team nationally in three-point percentage. And none of like their role players have gotten going from three. So this is just an, an efficient scoring offense. Their defense came in as the worst in the field by every measure. But they're actually, since the start of the postseason, they're playing more defense. The effort is there. Sometimes you see that with some of these really bad defense postseason play. Just the effort alone makes them tick up a little bit in efficiency. These teams played earlier in the season, and Arkansas was a 19-ish point home favorite, down 10 at the half, down 12 early second half, rallied to win by 11. They dominated the glass. Colin, I'm sure you're going to tell us about this. They, they, I think they out-rebounded by 26. That's going to happen against Dora Roberts. Dora Roberts is one of the worst rebounding teams in the country on both sides of the ball, outside the top 300 in offensive and defensive rebounding percentage. But it's also worth noting, well, there's two things in, in that game. Eric Musselman made a great adjustment at halftime, and he benched Vanover. And Vanover is basically not playing now. And they put, they just went small, and it helped them defend Aismas and O'Banner at the top of the key, and then it helped propel them to that second half run where they came back and won by 11. However, Aismas was in massive foul trouble. He picked up his third with four to go in the first half and his fourth with 10 to go in the second half. Here's my cap. I mean, Arkansas should get to the rim at will. Uh, Oral Roberts is like 330th in rim opportunities allowed. They sh- Arkansas should dominate the glass. If Arkansas is a hot shooting night, they're going to win this game by 15 to 20. But Oral Roberts won't come out scared. Look, they played a great non-conference schedule on the road, including at Arkansas. This offense is firing on all cylinders. The defense is playing a little better. So and I, so I bumped them accordingly. I've been on them the first two rounds. I played Oral Roberts plus 11 and a half, but it's not a position I tend to keep because I'm looking for Arkansas live. Why would you not at this point? Arkansas, they're both tournament games so far. They've been down double digits in the first half. Let's look back at their season. Of their 24 victories, 10 of them, they've been trailing by six or more eight minutes in to the first half, at least eight minutes into the first half. By the way, they won those games by an average of 10 points. Auburn, they're down by 19, 16 minutes in, they won. Colgate down 14, 17 minutes in, they won by 17. Texas A&M, they're down 14, 12 minutes in, they won by seven. Mississippi State down 13, 12 minutes in. They won by 16. Oral Roberts, earlier this year, down 12, 17 into the first half, won by 11. LSU, down 10, 15 minutes in the first half, won by eight. Central Arkansas, Central Arkansas, down 10, eight minutes into the first half, won by 25. Texas Tech in the tournament, down 10, 10 minutes into the first half, won by two. Missouri, down 10, 12 minutes into the first half, won by six. Kentucky, down six. Eight minutes into the first half, one by one. Nine of the ten games have been down double digits in the first half. This is the team that just starts slow. So I'm taking my shot here with my Royal Roberts boys pregame. I'll be looking to get Arkansas live at some point. Hopefully set up a nice, juicy middle. I think ultimately Arkansas is going to win this game uh, due to their dominance on the glass and at the rim. Or Roberts, by the way, has been better defending in transition, which is important against Arkansas. But um, Colin, I'll go to you first. This is your, these are your boys. Do you disagree with everything? Anything I said? Woo, pig suey! Colin's talking Razorback basketball. 
No, I, I'm really glad to hear that you're finally on the Razorback dip, the TV timeout Razorback dip train. Uh, there's no sense in taking a pregame number on Arkansas when they're going to spend the first 10 minutes finding out who they're going to be for the game because they're very versatile and they get to figure things out and they adjust and then they just beat the hell out of people. And I think the big thing that people don't realize is that Eric Musselman is a great coach, right? Lollygagging. That's what they do for the first 10 minutes of every game. Lollygag. Yeah. And then he starts sipping on the diet Pepsi like 500 times, like in between timeouts. And he's just going crazy to get him back on the sideline. So he could just tear into their ass. And the thing is, is points per possession after timeout, Eric Musselman is top 15 in the nation. He is a great coach. So let's just get that out of the way and say that, yes, I do like Arkansas in this game. I projected it at 13, but why buy it at minus 11 when I know I can get it live? Because, and I think people are going to say, okay, Colin, where is the dip? When is the dip going to happen? I don't know who the starting five is going to be, but if we need to focus on a certain player, it needs to be Devontae Davis, Devo Davis, his defensive efficiency. If you go and read Evan Mia or anything that looks at player efficiency individually, in the last 30 days, he has climbed into top 12 in the nation in defensive efficiency. He is the highest riser in the last 30 days. He wasn't even a factor in this game in Bud Walton Arena back in December. He played nine minutes. He had one steal. He wasn't even a factor. Now he's top 12 defensive player in the nation, like climbing up that high in the last 30 days. So when you look at Acemas, and what he's going to try to do as far as transition, three, 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 three. When Devo Davis is in the game, that's going to be the toughest defense that Acemas is going to see the entire game. So if you want to know where the dip is going to be on the Razorback squad, look to see if Devo Davis is on the court. If he's not on the court, expect Oral Roberts to go on a run. I love Jalen Tate. I love Moses Moody. I love J.D. Note. Moses Moody. Moses Moody. Little Rock Lightning. But Devo Davis is an animal. I mean, he's going to be all over Aces. And when he's not on the court, Oral Roberts should light Arkansas up from the three-point line. And why do I say that? Because Arkansas has been terrible at perimeter defense over a span of the last five games. If you look at this, Arkansas is 150th on the season in three-point defense, and that's falling. Four of the last five Razorback opponents have posted the highest highest three-point percentage against the Hogs the entire season. Texas Tech doesn't shoot threes at all and doesn't shoot them very well. They shot 50%. Oral Roberts is 41st in offensive tempo, and the Hogs' tempo is 36th. And the Hogs love fast opponents. They saw it with Alabama. They saw it with Georgia. They saw it with South Carolina. They've seen it with, Al- with Auburn. Uh, they, they love teams that love to play fast. So I expect ORU to take a ton of threes at a lightning pace, which is going to turn into a boatload of Jalen Williams, who did not play in December, and Justin Smith rebounds. If you like rebound props, go out there and search on Justin Smith, who had 10 offensive rebounds in this game uh, before. But that's going to turn into a ton of rebounds for Arkansas. That's going to turn into a ton of quick points for Arkansas. Arkansas, out of every team in the Sweet 16, will have the highest offensive shot quality. They will get to the rim whenever they want. Their threes will be clean. Uh, There's going to be so many double-tap rebound putbacks here. I took the over in this game. Now, I projected a 161. There ain't much wiggle room here, and you need Oral Roberts to be hitting threes the whole entire day. And when I talk about Devo Davis playing defense, you need him to chill out a little bit if you want to get on this over. But it's a number that I think that you buy on the over until 160. I'm not worried about Arkansas here whatsoever. I'm a little bit nervous about what's happening at the three-point line. They have had opponents tear them apart 
when Texas Tech is firing from all cylinders of the three-point line, you need to stop and, and reassess. Now, Texas Tech plays that 2-3 zone, packed the paint, made Arkansas do jumpers. That ain't happening here. So I'm not worried about the game. I like Arkansas to cover. We're shooting free throw rates. Second best free throw weight that we've shot as a program in the last 20 years. If ORU wants to put us on the line, that's fine. We're shooting a great rate. We'll hit the over with that. If we put ORU on the line, they're the number one free throw shooting team in the country. So I really like the over in this game. I really like playing Arkansas live when Devo Davis is not in the game because I expect ORU's offensive efficiency to be up. So that's how I'm playing my hogs. And then I'm crossing my fingers in the Elite Eight. I'm really going to be sweating that one. I Yeah, the sweet spot for me is like under the under 12 timeout or the under 8 timeout. That seems to be when Arkansas bottoms out in some of these games. I think personally it's it might just be that Musselman at a media timeout goes to Twitter and reads some bad tweets about Arkansas and then gets fired up and then uh, goes crazy on his team. But um, that, I, but this Oral Roberts offense is a juggernaut. They can shoot the three. They have great spacing. I mean, Aceves can shoot from the logo. And then you have O'Banner picking, popping, hitting threes at like 45%. They have great spacing. They're going to score. It's just a matter of how many stops they can get, and they're not going to get many rebounds. But, yeah, I mean, I would love to get, like, Arkansas under seven live um, if I can, eight to 12 minutes into the game. I think Randall, what say you? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a point, important to point out that, like, Florida was 290th offensively in turnover rate. And ORU had their best day of the season from a turnover and steal perspective against Florida. That's not going to happen against Arkansas, which is why I don't have any problems laying this number or playing it live. Randall, what say you? Well, I'm going to echo both of you guys. I like Oral Roberts pregame. I think it's too many points. I also like the over for all the reasons Colin said. Look, the one thing that Oral Roberts cannot have is A.D. Smith and O'Banner getting foul trouble, which means they cannot go out there, and there was problems, like you said, stuck in the first game, and end up getting limited in the first half because they're going to get their doors blown off. Paul Mills is going to come up with a game plan. The three-point defense by Arkansas is key, which is why I love the player props here. O'Banner, three-pointers made. 1.5. 1.5. I mean, look at O'Banner in the last four games that he's played. Four made threes, five made threes, three made threes, two made threes. In a game that they're projecting to score 160 total points, I like O'Banner going over that one. You can go to Ace Miss with two and a half as well. But I'm with you in the in the in-game, in the live line. The under 12 is a sweet spot. Arkansas gets off slow. Everybody's saying Arkansas won't be fooled by Oral Roberts because they've, they've seen them before. Well, yeah, Oral Roberts has also seen Arkansas before, so they're going to have a game plan for them as well. He can't have O'Banner and Aceman's get in foul trouble. I have no doubt that Arkansas is eventually going to pull away and win this game. I think the 11 and a half is too many. It's got to be high scoring. I don't picture Or Roberts coming out and saying we're going to slow it down. That's not what they do. Aceman turns the corner whenever he wants. I don't know how teams have not figured this out yet. He catches the ball. They try to double him. He gets right by both and gets a layup to the basket every time. Pick and pop with O'Banner is fantastic. He's making those shots. It's almost like you forget about O'Banner because Aceman is the leading scorer in the country. But the live line is absolutely the way to go. It's going to be a fun game, an entertaining game. I firmly expect Arkansas to move on, but I think the number is a little bit too high. But, yeah, I would love to get, like, Arkansas minus six and a half, something like that, smack dab at that under 12. I think that's the perfect play. But a lot of points. O'Banner and Aces will get theirs. But in the end, Arkansas too much. Muscle maybe maybe rips off his shirt there, says let's go, and all of a sudden the train takes off for the Razorbacks. All right, finally some agreement on the live line. I, I like all the dis- – Disagreement so far, give different sides of the coin. Let's move on to the last game on Saturday night. Oh, Saturday night 
11 seed Syracuse takes on number two seed Houston. Cougars are six point favorites over under 140 and a half. Uh, I think, look, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised Syracuse is here. That 2 3 zone, it just causes trouble for teams that aren't used to it in a tournament setting once they get out of conference play. One of the reasons Bayheim is 20 and 12 against the spread in the tournaments is 2005. So, look, and, and Buddy Bayheim has been unbelievable. He's averaging over 24 points per game over the last nine. Can't miss from the outside. Syracuse. <laughs> Over the last four games as the start of the ACC tournament, 50 of 109 from three, 46%. Crazy. But I don't think this is necessarily the best matchup for them. Why? Well, number one, Sampson has five days, five plus days, five full days to prepare for the zone. Houston's also seen zone at a top 50 rate nationally. They play some zone teams in conference, Tulane and Tulsa, to throw out a few. And they've done well against the zone. They have shooters. It's a three-point heavy team. On the other side of the ball, and look, if they're missing shots, they're going to dominate the offensive glass. They're at their top three nationally in offensive rebounding percentage. Syracuse, obviously, in their zone, they're always vulnerable to, off, to offensive rebounds. They're, I think, 340th or something, way down there in offensive rebounding percentage allowed. So Houston's going to eat on the offensive glass if they're not hitting their threes. On the other end, look, and Houston wants to play slow. They grind the game down. Whereas Syracuse wants to get out and transition, they will have some transition opportunities because Houston crashes the offensive glass. Whereas Syracuse has been good, but Houston's also really good in transition. D. They recover very well. Perimeter defense, their isolation defense, these are all the things that Syracuse relies on, is elite. And you could say that there's a lot of variance in a single season with three point defense, which is true, but not with Houston. Their length and the way that they play, I think they're 12th in three point defense. Last year they were eighth, the year before they were first. They have the length to bother Bayheim. Syracuse might have some three-point regression coming its way. It's just not a great matchup for Syracuse. But the, the, the kind of the wild card here is, is Drew, and he's so important to what Houston wants to do at the point guard position. He also could fill up the stat sheet, his first triple-double recently in, at Houston since Bo Outlaw in the early 90s. And the drop-off when he's not in there, a point guard, is significant, uh, especially on the offense then, which we saw against Rutgers. He has a hip pointer. He was able to close the game against Rutgers when they closed, I think, on a 14-2 run. That's a good sign. But hip pointers usually take one to three weeks. So how healthy is he going to be? Is it going to flare up? That's the big unknown here. So for me, I think this is a live betting game. I I, I might look for to get Houston. And it should be a high variance game, right? Syracuse takes a lot of threes. They give up a lot of threes. I just think Houston's going to score more consistently with their offensive rebounding. And it's just a bad matchup for Syracuse. It might have some shooting regression coming. But if Giroux is healthy and Syracuse is hitting some threes early, I'll look to grab Houston live, maybe minus three or below. On the other hand, if Houston is up and Drew looks like he's starting to get hobbled, I'll, I might take a shot on Syracuse second half or live. They have the offense that can get back in it, streaky offense. And Houston's offense just, it seems to me, will go into big funks if Drew isn't fully healthy. Randall, what do you see here? I'm back in Syracuse. I have not been impressed with the – I have not been impressed with the Houston offense. Uh, if you like Houston, I, I get it. The, the argument is that they're going to be ferocious on the boards against Syracuse. I get it, and that can totally happen. I am looking for regression from Quentin Grimes. Grimes has been absolutely on fire. 33 against Western Kentucky, 21 against Cincinnati, 21 against Memphis. But the guys, the majority of his points come from three-point range. I just think, yeah, Sampson's going to have a week to get prepared. So is Beheim in a zone that is operating at its most efficient right now. 
Giroux is limited. He was a warrior against Rutgers coming in and out of the game, but they need him on offense. I do not expect Quentin Grimes to give me a five for nine or four for eight performance from three-point range. His over-under on three-pointers made in this game is three and a half. I am taking the under. I think Houston is going to struggle to score. I think Houston D's up. Syracuse, absolutely. And I don't expect Buddy Beheim to go off. They're going to focus on him. But there's a lot of other options. Dolezal's done some nice things. Gurrier got hot in the last game. So I think the six points is too much. I think Syracuse is the better all-around team. I love what Houston has done, but they have not done it against the elite opponents all year. They were lucky to escape Rutgers. Now you're giving me six points against a team that's going to slow it down. I also like the under. It's at 140. Open at 140.5. It's a little bit down now, but I think it's a slow pace game for everything you said. In those situations, I'm going to take the points. I think Bayheim limits the Houston offense enough, and Jarreau's injury really does hurt the Cougars' offense that Syracuse could get the outright win, but I think six is way too much. Yeah, I, I, I still will always, excuse my pronunciation, I've always called him Giroux, Giroux, Giroux a lot because he's a New Orleans kid, the uh, Claude Giroux, I'm a Flyers fan, plus my accent. People, well, Some people hate my accent. Tournament, tournament. Uh, Colin, are you going to make it another disagreement here? Well, I mean, how many double screens is Giroux going to have to eat trying to guard Buddy Beheim? I think what was interesting to me was – you knew you were going to pay a tax in the prop market on how many points Buddy Beheim was going to score. Uh, but the thing that I keep coming back to is Houston's defensive free throw rate being 332nd in the nation. Syracuse doesn't get to the line an awful lot, but man, that, I mean, they shoot a great number when they are at the line, but I just see Buddy Beheim uh, scoring when he wants because Houston's opponents are having a lot of success from the three point line. Uh, and I see Buddy Beheim getting on the board in almost every other possession. And if they put them on the line, uh, which it looks like they will, because that Houston fouls a ton. Uh, I just like Buddy Beheim's props more than anything else. Now, both Houston and Syracuse have a pace that is just continuing to decline. The better Syracuse has gotten over the five game average pace. It's fallen from 73 possessions to 62 possessions per game. The better that Sarah, the orange have gotten, the slower the games have been. Uh, the question is which defense is going to stop the three point shooting because Syracuse's opponents are just shooting the lights out right now. It's moving in the wrong way for the orange from a moving average standpoint. Both West Virginia and NC State just lit them up from the perimeter. Uh, Houston's three-point defense is also trending in the wrong direction. They've allowed at least 38% to Rutgers, Cleveland State, Memphis twice, and South Florida just recently. Uh, Houston is seventh in shot quality on offense, and uh, Syracuse is 130th defensively. So I try to make cases as to why I want to take Syracuse, but I can't do it here because I don't believe that they can keep Houston from getting clean looks at the rim or clean looks around the perimeter. I am thinking that this is a sneaky over here, two offenses that are running slower than usual, but at the same time, points per possession, and the fact that I think Syracuse is going to go to the line a ton because of Houston's defensive free throw rate has me looking at possibly taking it over, but I, I think a Buddy Beheim over 20 and a half points is the way I'm leaning in this game. I don't know. I think I would disagree with you on Beheim. I think that that's way too high. Um, it is. That's a tax. That's what he's going to be getting. I think that, look, Houston's three-point defense, they've given up some better than normal performances, but just, I mean, the last three years, they're elite. They're top 10. So I would think that regression would go in their favor. And Syracuse has been like 50% from three. So the regression monster looms here. But there are your arguments for both sides. All right, before we get to Sunday, we want to tell you about our friends at Athletic Brewing Company, makers of America's most flavorful non-alcoholic beer. Listen, guys, the Final Four is just around the corner. And Colin, Mike, and I are here to help listeners like you make smart, rational gambling decisions. But if you go out there and get totally shit-faced on 
a tray of Irish car bombs and start eyeballing the board, you're going to catch a case of bet regret. You'll be out there on the lawn, shirtless, betting stupid long shots and screaming into our bad beat hotline. By the way, don't forget the call. It's a recipe for disaster. So if you're thinking of taking it easy on the boost at any point this April and celebrating the return of spring with with just some nice level-headed gambling, Athletic Brewing's award-winning beers are a great option because Athletic makes great tasting beers that celebrate the innovation of great craft beer, but without the alcohol. So if you want to support this show, head to athleticbrewing.com. Check out their selection and place an order using code ACTION15. That's ACTION15. This gets new customers 15% off their first order. And if you order two or more six packs, shipping is always free. That's athleticbrewing.com. Use the code ACTION15 on that first order and enjoy great taste while keeping your gambling edge. All right, let's move on to Sunday, 210 Eastern on CBS. Five seed Creighton against one seed Gonzaga. Gonzaga 13-point favorite, over under 158. This is it's a tough game for me to count. I think it's a tad high. We know the Gonzaga offense is a juggernaut, right? You have Suggs at point, you have Kispert making threes, you have Timmy on the low block. All the role players seem to fit perfectly. They get to the rim as much as any team in the country. They're elite at the rim. They're a transition juggernaut. The number one in transition opportunities, number one in transition expected field goal percentage. I don't know how anyone could stop this offense. Creighton does have an underrated half-court defense. A lot of length on the perimeter that could give Gonzaga some trouble, force him into some tough shots. The problem is I don't know how they defend Timmy on the interior, and I don't know how they stop Gonzaga in transition. No one really can, but Creighton's 40 percentile in transition, points per possession, per synergy, that's not great against Gonzaga. The Creighton offense, look, if you want to take a shot in the money line, it's a high-variance offense. They take a lot of threes. And when they're good, they're really good. Upset alert. But there's going to be a lot of possessions in the game, so that minimizes the variance a bit. But if Creighton's making their threes and we get the good Creighton, they'll probably cover this game. If they're not, they're going to get blown out. And that's what's hard for me. I mean, Creighton's just tough to figure out. They look so good one game, and then we see them lose four times. They lost four times to non-tourney teams during the year. And then they lost at home to Georgetown. They got trucked by Georgetown in the Big East tournament. So they're, they're kind of Jekyll and Hyde, but they have some length. Zigorowski's an excellent point guard. They can shoot. I think the X factor, which might decide the cover, is Mitch Ballock. Can he make six threes? That's, I mean, if, and they got to get, they, he's done that twice this year against, I think, Villanova and Seton Hall. And Creighton won both games. They got to 85 and 86 points. I think 85 is the where they got to get to to potentially win this game. They could still easily lose 90 to 85, but they got to get to, I think, at least 85. Ballot, I mean, he, he will go. He will also have games where he scores no points and play 30 minutes, three points, two points. So if he can go nuts from three, certainly capable, they're going to be there. So it's a tough game for me to cap. Randall, let me throw it to you first. What say you? Yeah, much like Baylor, I think Creighton got by their big hurdle. Having to defend the Gauchos there with a couple seconds left, with the entire season on the line and escaping gave them new life. I don't want to hear that, oh, it's just Ohio. Ohio was good, folks. They were rolling. And you're right, Stuck. Their half-court defense is very underrated, particularly against two-point range. They're 35th in the country, allowing 45% from two-point range. That's critical because Gonzaga is first in two-point offense. Timmy is the key. I took a flyer on him for the most outstanding player of the Final Four. 
because he was six to one. I think he's a key to what Gonzaga is going to try to do here for the remainder of the tournament. He's got to score inside. I think he can do well here. But Creighton's defense, particularly against three-pointers, is also great. It comes down to whether they're hot and they can score. And the key to that is Zagorowski, who at the beginning of the year, people were talking about like a first-team All-American-like player. He did not play like that, but recently he's been on fire. Four of seven from three against Ohio. Three of six from three against Cal Santa, uh, Cal Santa Barbara. Three of four against Georgetown. Four or five against Butler at the end of the year. So he's playing at a different level. And when your point guard, like him, a veteran, is playing at that level, everything else falls into place. They are talented. They have Jefferson. They have guys who can make threes, Mahoney, Bishop. Uh, they have a couple guys even to come off the bench who can cause problems. And Balak is the key. He came into this season like a 40% three-point shooter. And he was, he was not there for a long period of time. And now he's gotten hot at the end of the year. The issue with Creighton, they don't make their free throws. But they play solid defense. They know the style of basketball. I love Gonzaga. I think Gonzaga is going to win the game. I think the points here are too much, and I'm gladly going to take them and also look for some, you know, props if you want to look at specific players. Because Zagorowski's prop for three pointers made in the prior game was two and a half. That was a joke. He had three in the first half easily. So I agree. I think Creighton's got to score. I think they are going to score, and I think they're going to cover the number. I'm, I think I'm going to. I'm going to find, is there going to be a Mitch Ballack prop? I don't know. I don't really bet props and can't really, but for special events, like. I can get some down. I have a feeling he's going to hit a couple of threes here. Um, Colin, what do you see here? Yeah, I mean, the reason OU didn't cover the game was because they sent Gonzaga to the free throw line 26 times, and and, and the Bulldogs made 23 of them. And Creighton is 42nd in defensive free throw rate. Uh, so, I mean, they're just not going to send OU there. So I think Creighton has a good shot to cover this big number, and I like the overall. So, I mean, if, if there's been a decline anywhere in Gonzaga basketball, it's defensive rebounding with a moving average going from about 40 to 27 when you look at it over 100 possessions uh, through the past 20 games. So Creighton cannot expose this, though. That's that's the problem is they're terrible in offensive rebounding. Uh, so there should be a lot of tapbacks, uh, and I expect there to be a ton of points here. Points per possession continue to fall for Creighton. Uh, they've been sub 101 the last four games and, and a season worth 73 against Georgetown. But these two profiles match up with each other. Like they, they play the same kind of ball. It's not like a, a style clash coming in here. It's tough to see Creighton win this game because, you know, I, I laugh because we always called Chad Morris in college football Gus Malzon light, but Creighton is kind of like a Gonzaga light. Uh, you know, Gonzaga is number one in shot quality total, but that's all on offense. They're actually 56th in perimeter D. So I think Creighton is going to be able to get some three pointers to go down. They just can't get anything else, uh, you know, as far as insider shooting free throws. Uh, both teams adjusted tempo offense mask their overall tempo. And that's when you need to fire on an over because when you look at the adjusted tempo number, you need to slice it out from the offensive and defensive perspective. And when you do that, Creighton is 42nd and Gonzaga is second. Both of those on offense are higher than the overall adjusted tempo. So I like the over here. I I, I think it's just going to be a, similar to Arkansas and Oral Roberts. I think there's going to be a mass amount of points scored very quickly here. Uh, and what should make Gonzaga sweat just a little bit? Uh, I like Creighton to possibly cover here. Uh, hopefully it doesn't come down to the free throw line. Yeah, they don't – Creighton's not particularly deep. It's a really experienced team. They don't want this called tight because if they get in foul trouble, that's troubling. Because And then also they struggle at the line. It's just, I, I mean, Timmy, I don't know how they stopped Timmy and, and their transition defense is, is worrisome, but their three's got to go. And Zigorowski versus Suggs will be fun to watch. All right. And look, Creighton's half-court defense, very underrated. Look at any metric. They have a ton of length, really versatile. 
All right, let's move on to the second game on Sunday. Florida State against Michigan. This is down Michigan's down to a two-point favorite, over under 143 and a half. I played Florida State plus three. I make this like closer to one. I would look under here. I think both defenses have some good matchups. I don't expect Liber, Isaiah Livers to play, but this is a good matchup for Brandon Johns. Florida State, look, they want to pressure you on defense. They press at a top five rate. Michigan's been good against the press, but they've barely seen it under 5% of the time. They trap you, they'll double you in the post, double you all over, and they're just so long. They have length and athleticism all over, and they make just life difficult for you. I think they can really disrupt this Michigan offense, especially considering they can they don't really need to help on Dickinson, which all opens up a lot of the Michigan offense. However, because they're so aggressive, they are vulnerable, Florida State, to offensive rebounds. So with Johns in there and Dickinson, Michigan should get – some second chance looks. Florida State also loves to get out in transition. They want to play fast. Michigan, little vulnerable in transition defense, but really good at preventing transition opportunities. It's really important against Florida State. They do that well. I think, look, Wagner is a good matchup here for Scotty Barnes. You have Dickinson in the middle, and you know that his size can help combat some of the Florida State. Florida State loves to live on the offensive glass. It's really nice when you have a team that's top 20 in three-point shooting percentage and offensive rebounding percentage. But Florida State, they like to create a lot of mismatches on the offensive end, take advantage of their athleticism and length. Their main problem is turnovers. They just a ton of turnovers, sloppy turnovers. But Michigan doesn't really turn you over. But I think that is a big benefit to Florida State, who, by the way, will also get to play in this building for a second time, whereas Michigan will be playing it for the first time, so maybe that's an advantage. The other team, by the way, that that applies to Syracuse, playing in the same building twice, Houston for the first time. And then Baylor is playing in Hinkle again. But Nova obviously plays at Hinkle, although it's been a house of horrors for them. But back to Michigan, Florida State. Look, I think it's going to be a great game. Great game. Nail-biter, just like the last time these two met in the tournament when Leonard Hamilton didn't call a timeout. I just think the Florida State athleticism, the way that their defense is playing, their length in the interior, also a lot deeper the pressure is going to cause some problems for Michigan. Coin, like close to a coin flip game. You can see it going either way. So I gladly grabbed the three. And I'm looking at the under here. Randall, what do you see in Florida State, Michigan, to our futures teams? Yeah, all Florida State for me. At some point, not having your best all around player, which is Isaiah Livers, it's not Hunter Dickinson. He's been fantastic, but their go to guy, 43% from the beyond the arc, is Livers. The issue is you're now putting Shondi Brown in the starting lineup and you're limiting their bench. Florida State does have problems with turnovers. Michigan doesn't turn teams over a lot. I like Florida State's length. I think Livers is essential to spacing against a team like this. LSU, by the way, was neck and neck with Michigan until that god-awful foul on Watford there, the the one he called the charge on with four minutes left. If they count that and the one, it's a one-point game. Instead, he's fouled out we move on. So I love Florida State. I've struggled with them. But the biggest bet I made in the tournament was uh, laying one and a half against Colorado. You know my thoughts on them. I like Florida State here. I think it's their time. No livers is essential for Michigan. Jawan Howard's an amazing job. Dickinson's been great inside. But now you have some legitimate length that's going to bother him a little bit. And I think not spacing the floor as much with livers and the lack of depth, which could be an issue with foul trouble here, is too much to handle. So I like Florida State. Gladly take the points. I think this is just too much, too shorthanded for Michigan at this point. Nice win over LSU, but I think they're out after this game. Colin, you agree? I, 
Yeah, I like Florida State for a whole different set of reasons. So this just enforces what I already believed in, which is, you know, Michigan's had a steep decline in two-point percentage shooting as the season went on. But if you look at that LSU game, you would think that, you know, Michigan's back on top of the world. But I've said this all year, LSU is defense optional. Florida State is 10th in the nation in two-point defense. They're going to shut down whatever Michigan has down in the interior. And Florida State's main area of concern is ball security. The team that knocks Florida State out is going to be the one that forces them to make turnovers because they can't take care of the ball. But Michigan is 337th in defensive turnovers. That's uh, terrible. One of the worst in the nation. The Wolverines can't log any takeaways, so I'm taking the Knolls here. I like them to win outright. Leonard Hamilton timeout revenge game. Hopefully, though, if Florida State is down two with two seconds or five seconds left, Hamilton says don't foul um, for us with plus two and a half or plus three. Lenny! It's Leonard. Like I told you before. Did you? I must have forgot. All right, let's move on to the third game of the day, the UCLA Bruins, another Pac-12 team. Who would have thought we had three Pac-12 teams on the second day of the Sweet 16 and only one Big Ten team, the only Big Ten team in the Sweet 16. UCLA, the 11th seed, taking on Alabama. Alabama out to a six-and-a-half-point favorite, total sitting at 145-and-a-half. got to give Cronin credit because, look, this UCLA team, they before the season started, they lost next to their point guard who went to the G League. It was Highly prized recruit. They lost Jalen Hill. They lost Chris Smith. And they've seemingly started to peak. They did lose four straight and the regular season, including the Cup of Swarming. But they lost to Oregon State in overtime. They lost to USC at the buzzer in a game they they trailed for a total of zero seconds. I, but it's a team that's playing really well. Johnny Juzang, the Kentucky transfer, sat behind two first-round draft picks, is playing out of his mind. You have Tiger Campbell in that backcourt as well. They had two comprehensive wins against BYU and Abilene Christian. It's a Mick Cronin team. They want to play slow. One of the guys I've been really impressed with in the tournament so far has been Cody Riley and his post defense against the seven footer for Abilene Christian against the, the bigs of BYU. But I, I think, look, against BYU, UCLA just really took advantage of their perimeter defense in the pick and roll and BYU didn't adjust against Abilene Christian. Riley did a great job. Just an athletic mismatch. Juzang went nuts again. This is a different animal. Now, look, UCLA, Alabama wants to get out in transition. They want to play fast. It's a three and rim team. They get, either get to the rim or they shoot a three. In the half court, dribble penetration, kick out for three. UCLA does a tremendous job of limiting transition opportunities, and they are elite in defending in transition. Point for UCLA. However, in the half court, number one, on half court offense, Alabama can so versatile on the defensive end. If they want, they can stick Herb Jones on Juzang. They can, their perimeter, UCLA is not going to be able to do what they did to Michigan State, to BYU, to Abilene Christian. Alabama, this is an elite defense that can match up all over against UCLA. UCLA, on the other end, got to play two post, two of the top 40 post offenses in the country in Abilene Christian and BYU. Alabama, I think, is bottom five. They never go to the post. They, they don't run any offense to the post. Where are they going to get exploited? I think that their guards are going to get exploited in the half court. So I think that UCLA can do a good job of limiting them in transition. But per synergy, UCLA on spot-up shots, which are where Alabama lives on, fifth percentile. Miserable in that regard. Bad perimeter defense. UCLA allows teams to get a lot of threes, and teams make a lot of them. And that's exactly what Alabama wants to do. So I think Alabama matches up really well on both ends of the floor in the half court. Now, UCLA will try to slow this up, and keeping Alabama on a transition will help. 
But Alabama, look, they had that big decline in three-point shooting. They finally had a big day. They were overdue for a big day from three. They saw the ball go in the net. I think that can carry over. And I think UCLA's run ends here. But I think the line is fair. And how good is the Pac-12? I'm still trying to determine that. So I threw back, like I said before, I threw Batman a money line parlay. I think they're safe here with Baylor, who I also think is safe. Played, paid, paid around even money when I bet it. Might be a little heavier now. Randall, UCLA, Bama? Agree with Alabama. They're winning this game. So it's a very safe money line play as well. UCLA, Pac-12, I get it. Well, so was Colorado. Okay, and look what happened to them when they ended up going against Florida State. Mick Cronin, superior job. Chris Smith goes out after eight games, reinvents the team. Mick Cronin, Cronin from Cincinnati, good defense. Not what he has in UCLA. Defensive metrics aren't great, but the offense has actually been pretty good. Twenty, uh, They end up being 12th in the country in adjusted offensive efficiency. Alabama is at a different level. They will break them down in the half court. They just find your weakness. They dribble drive. They, they attack. Herb Jones will drive. Kick out to Petty. Kick out to Shackelford. Rebound inside by Bruner. Primo. It's too many weapons. This is going to get away from them. You hit it with UCLA playing a certain style of team. The last two games, this is not the matchup. This is Oregon on steroids is who they're playing right here. I like Alabama to cover. I think they pull away. I think this could get ugly if they're really hitting their threes. And the key is a team like Alabama that has such a high-octane offense also locks down on defense. I don't see how UCLA can stop Alabama's offense with all the different options they have and then simultaneously score enough to keep pace with Alabama against that Alabama defense. This is one of the games I'm most comfortable with. I love Alabama. I love Alabama to cover. Great job by Mick Cronin. UCLA makes a sweet 16. Well done. I think it ends here, and I think it ends here comfortably for the Crimson Tide. Yeah, and in fairness, UCLA, which has not been a good perimeter defense all year, Michigan State, 6 of 18 from 3, UCLA 9 of 18, UCLA wins in overtime. Against BYU, UCLA 8 of 19 from 3, BYU 3 of 17. Against Abilene Christian, Abilene Christian 4 of 19 from 3. So they've benefited from their opponents not being able to hit an outside shot. Uh, I don't think Alabama will have the same struggles. Colin, you're your SEC boys, are you backing them or are you fading? Well, I think I'm going to use everything that Randall said to lead into what I'm going to bet, which is the under. And UCLA has an offensive tempo rank outside the top 300, and that has been slower in the three tournament games so far. As for Alabama, and, and Randall mentioned that this could be a blowout. If it is, the pace of play is not going to be furious. It's going to be slow. And if you look at Alabama – their pace has dramatically dropped off. Maryland, Iona, and Mississippi State were the three slowest pace games on the season. Alabama had no problems letting the Terrapins and the Gales dictate the pace. Since late February, the tempo has moved on a five-game rolling average from 77 possessions to 69.2 for the Crimson Tide. Their games are getting massively slower. Also taking a nosedive, forced turnover rate from Alabama. From the beginning of the SEC tournament, the five-game turnover rate has moved from 26.1 to 18.9. And that's not good against a Mick Cronin offense that essentially wants to walk it up the court. Your ability to stop possessions is just vanishing. And I think Alabama plays great defense, but it's not like they're taking the ball away. Possessions are getting extended, and against UCLA, that means it's going to eat up all the clock against Mick Cronin's offense. So I'm taking the under. I'm staying away from UCLA completely as a side. I agree that Alabama is your, your money line that you want to put into your parlays. It's tough to say that they've improved their perimeter defense enough just off of Abilene Christian and BYU. 
Uh, but if they have, I mean, that kind of helps the under too. So you're banking here on the fa- on all the, the trending metrics that say UCLA is extremely slow and getting slower. Alabama is letting their opponents dictate the pace, so it's going to be slow here. And, and the fact that Alabama is not forcing any turnovers, which means UCLA is going to extend possession. So I just don't see this being an up and down game. I like the under all the way down to 141. UCLA is going to have issues shooting against a tied defense at 17th and effective field goal percentage. I just, a lot of clanks here, maybe more boring than people think. I don't disagree there. And I, I mean, yeah, UCLA could have some success on the offensive glass. They're going to grind out possessions, kick out, start reset. I just think the, the, the Alabama defense, I think, just matches up really well here. Going back to Florida State, Michigan, we talked about how the Big Ten is overrated. And I've downgraded Michigan as a result. Like I said, okay, obviously all their adjusted metrics aren't as good. I don't think they're as good. They're as good as I originally thought. But do you think that the ACC might have been overrated? Now we have Florida State and Syracuse, but Syracuse is like a different case because of their unique style. But UNC blown out by Wisconsin. Georgia Tech lost to Loyola Chicago. Now they were shorthanded. Virginia Tech lost to Florida. Virginia upset by Ohio. Clemson lost to Rutgers. So is that a concern with, with Florida State, or did, how do you view the ACC so far? Because all Big Ten's been getting all the talk, and ACC's in the back. Like, You're good, good. Take all the attention. I think people group the conference and then use that vision of the conference with the individual teams way too much. I mean, how many times did we think the ACC was down, but Duke was still able to get through? Or Virginia was able to get through and make a run. So sure, as a whole, whenever Duke and North Carolina are not among the elite in the conference, then the conference, of course, ACC is going to be viewed at as down. But I would not let that affect Florida State whatsoever. Virginia had off for the whole week. They could have beaten Ohio, and we wouldn't even be talking about this right now. Virginia Tech, lost player mid-year, was just okay. Georgia Tech could have got by Loyola Chicago, and I think could have beaten Illinois if Moses Wright had played. So I think there's some unfortunate circumstances that cause the ACC teams to bounce. And I do not hold that against Florida State whatsoever because there have been times when people have poo-pooed the ACC. Duke ends up making the final four. Virginia ends up making a run. So, yeah, as a whole, it's absolutely down because Duke and North Carolina weren't, weren't good at all. But for Florida State, I still think their potential is great. And I think because of what you said, people are undervaluing Florida State because they have this pack herd mentality that, oh, the Pac-12 is doing really well. So let's bet up Colorado against Florida State. No, you have to look at teams as individuals. I still think the Seminoles are really good. Here, it just means more. All right, let's move on to the final game of the Sweet 16, 9.45 Eastern on TBS. It's a Pac-12 tournament game. Seven seed Oregon against six seed USC. USC now two point favorite over under 138 and a half. These teams met in the regular season once, or USC won 72 to 58, and Isaiah Mobley didn't even play. Oregon shot seven of 17 from three, USC 10 of 21 from three. They both were over 40% from three, USC almost 50%, and the game only reached 130 points. I played under 139 and a half. This USC defense is on another level. Oregon's going to have to get hot from three. You can't really score inside against USC. If USC is making their shots, they are just become so dangerous. And they could they could give Gonzaga trouble if they're hitting their outside shots. Now, they're inconsistent in that department. Their free throws are scary as hell. They're awful from the line. But, I mean, when they put up 85 against Kansas, I, I mean, Isaiah Mobley going four or five from three, 11 of 18 from three as a team. I don't think that that happens. Again, I think there's some shooting regression there. The Oregon defense is going to put pressure on these guards. They're going to go to a myriad of zone looks. 
I think these team, two teams are very familiar with each other. I think this turns into more of a grinder. Again, 130 points in the first meeting when they both shot lights out from three. But so, and look, you have to give credit to Dana Altman. He's a phenomenal tournament coach. He can throw things at teams that they're not used to seeing, different zone looks, different presses. But this is, you have five days to prepare here, right? And this is a team that USC is familiar with. So that kind of lack of familiarity, quick turnaround, that does, you know, Altman kind of loses some of that. And he's 15-5 and one against the spread in the tournament. So, yeah, backing Altman has been very profitable. Guess what Andy Enfield is? 9-0 and against the spread in the tournament. So these are both ridiculously successful uh, coaches from an against the spread perspective. I lean USC, but I think the number is, I mean, I make USC like a, a between a one and two point favorite. So I don't know. I think either one of these teams could potentially give Gonzaga some problems. If USC is making shots, so they're a monster with the Mobleys and all their NBA size in the interior, the way that that defense plays. But I just think this is going to be a lower scoring game. I took some first half under and some game under. I'm not expecting USC to shoot that well again. Oregon's offense won't explode. This isn't the Iowa defense. Randall, what what do you see here? Ducks now, ducks later, ducks forever. I'm taking Oregon in this game. That first game, 72-58, USC blew him out. Drew Peterson and Tajidi combined for 8 of 15 from three-point range. No way Dana Altman lets that happen again. The Mobley brothers are great inside. They're not tremendous scores. They're not like 25, 28 points per game scores. They control the interior. I think the Ducks get out in transition. Remember, in that game, first half, USC's up 43-22 in that first matchup. They couldn't play any better. I think Oregon got it back to six. I remember watching it really, really close. They're going to control tempo. They're shooting really well. Duarte's at a different level right now. It's a very close game. I like the underplay. I think Oregon is going to play well. I think Altman is going to have a great game plan. Like you said, Enfield's been strong also, but USC does not make free throws. And the only reason this game got out of hand is because Edie and Peterson went nuts, which I do not see happening again. But we have seen Oregon come in after not playing in the first round because VCU with COVID was, was taken out. They came out and lit up Iowa. Now, listen, I understand Iowa, USC, USC's defense is a lot better, but Iowa would have been improved. They didn't care. They got their game. They got transition. So I like Oregon. Their three-point shooting is hot. I think he'll come up with something to limit the bigs inside, and he will not let Edie and Peterson go nuts. And if that is the case and USC is not making their shots, like you said, Stuck, then Oregon's going to win this game. So I'm banking on Altman. I'm banking on the Ducks' hot streak, the guards. They're totally healthy. And the familiarity and the motivation having lost to USC back, you know, in the first time they met. Oh. Yeah, I think the familiarity is an angle for the reason to play the under, which is what I'm going to play here. And, you know, despite a healthy and hot streak here from Oregon, uh, you know, in two-point territory, they're just going to get shut down. USC does all their work down in the blocks, and that's going to be a problem for the Ducks. Uh, And USC just has a huge advantage on the offensive glass. Uh, They should get all the second-chance points they want. But if you foul them, they're not going to hit any free throws. Now, both these teams, why I like the under, both these teams are really low in defensive free throw rate, uh, 26th for the USC defense. 59th for the Oregon defense. So there's not going to be a lot of going to the foul line. If you look at Oregon, listen, USC can't make their free throws. Oregon's 297th at getting to the free throw line. I mean, they are terrible at, at getting themselves to the charity stripe. So, you know, the USC defense is, uh, they've kind of been in decline from the perimeter. Uh, you know, Utah shot 60%, Colorado shot 50%. Uh, Kansas and Drake both had terrible performances from the outside. So maybe USC's three-point defense is stepping up a little bit. Just I think every bullet point that I see 
go gravitates towards the under. Each one of these teams has had a pace fall over their last 10 to 20 games. You throw out the Iowa game and Oregon was hovering around 64 possessions a game. USC's had a steady decline from 71 possessions to 62 possessions per game. So the familiarity and the fact that the pace is slowing down so much for these two teams and the free throw, the fact that the free throw line is going to be non-existent for Oregon and USC can't hit anything from the free throw line. I like the under here. That'll wrap up our eight games as in-depth as you will find. I like that we had some different perspectives. We're going to be back Monday, by the way, with an Elite Eight preview. But we're not completely done yet. We have our weekend six-pack. So start thinking of your favorite bet of the weekend. Let's first bring in the boys from Three-Man Weave, Kyle McCune, Jim Root, and Matt Cox, college hoops contributors here at the Action Network. You can Catch Three Man Weave on Twitter at 3MW underscore CBB and on the Three Man Weave podcast. We're here to build a very special version of the weekend six pack with six picks for the Sweet 16 slate. Welcome, guys. Jim, my guy, what's been your favorite gambling moment of the tournament thus far? Personally, for me, it is the fact that Loyola Chicago is in the Sweet 16. And as somebody who, who bet the uh, the future there, fifteen hundred to one back in May. I am I'm very happy to see that. But as a group, I think for us guys, that was the Baylor first half miracle cover. I would say it was looking dire, up seven with about two minutes left, and then they went on a crazy run to end the half to cover minus fourteen and a half, win by sixteen. It was good to see the Bears get it done as a a big collective group bet that we had on that one. Yeah, that was uh, quite a cover, Kai. Let's kick things off. We'll start with you. What do you got? We're going with Houston minus six. Jim Bayheim's reign of terror is over. Houston can and wants to shoot the basketball from the three-point line. Syracuse's 2-3 zone has no chance. Houston is also the second-best offensive rebounding team by rate in the country. Absolute destruction on this end of the floor. On the other end, I don't think Syracuse scores easily at all. They're 10th nationally in isolation play types per synergy. They score in transition. They score out handoffs, uh, screens for shooters. Houston destroys isolation teams. They destroy transition ops and rank in the 99th percentile in guarding shots off screens. Orange are going to struggle to score. Houston, minus six. All right, Jim, you're up next. What do you got? I'm sticking with Baylor. I mentioned how well that, that first half went for us. I'm going with Baylor, minus seven. Colin Gillespie's absence didn't really matter against Winthrop, and it definitely didn't matter against North Texas, a team that was just completely out of gas there. But it's going to matter against the number two team in the country. Baylor has great ball pressure guards, particularly Davion Mitchell. He's going to swallow up Justin Moore. And Mark Vidal is one of the few strong matchups for Jeremiah Robinson Earl in the entire country. He, he can move with him, and he has the strength. And honestly, the, the Baylor defense just looked like it kind of was back to where we thought it would be. They held Wisconsin under one point per possession, and they completely suffocated the first-round opponent. So I'm happy to see that out of Baylor. Villanova's switchable defense does give me some concerns with Baylor trying to create open shots and not really having a post threat to take advantage of what Nova does inside. But I think Baylor's offensive rebounding will come into play there if, if Villanova gets into some weak matchups. So I did take this at minus six right away uh, as soon as it was posted. But for official podcast tracking, I think the current price of minus seven is fair. So let's go with that. Baylor minus seven. All right. Sick them. Matt, close it out. What do you got? Uh, I have to decide before I even begin my take here as I look to fade Gonzaga, the almighty juggernaut 
Bulldogs. But yes, I'm looking at Creighton plus 13. It's odd that you can find a team that's somewhat undervalued or overvalued at this point in the year. The markets are efficient. They've been sharpened out by the larger sample size. However, I'm here to contend that the Jays might have some untapped value. You look at Ken Palm. Right now, the Jays are ranked just inside top 20, and they are projected to lose by 10, according to Mr. Pomeroy's model. I have this Creighton team ranked inside the top 10. They haven't played as such all season. The offense has been a little bit of a funk. They've had some you know, minor injuries that have taken their toll. But just last game against Ohio, we saw that offense rise to the elite level that we know it's capable of playing. What's held the fort together for the Jays this year has been their defense. That's kind of why I like them against Gonzaga here. I know that they can defend across at least the, uh, the outer four positions on the perimeter. They have big, long guards who can switch. Denzel Mahoney, Damon Jefferson, two guys who are going to be critical matchups against Jalen Suggs, Corey Kispert, and all that, the offensive ammunition that the Zags boast. The key matchup, though, where I have to watch out for, Christian Bishop versus Drew Timmy. Drew Timmy calling off that monster game against Oklahoma. And they have bigger, more size up front than the Jays do. However, where Bishop can get his is on the other end. He's a frenetic cutter, phenomenal ball screener. He's just constantly active on the boards. I think he can actually wear Timmy out, sort of take Timmy's legs out from under him from the on the other end. I'm looking at that as the key matchup in this game. Catching Creighton plus 13 feels like a ton of value. I make this game closer to 10. Anything up to 12, I would endorse. All right, there you have it. Our first half of the weekend Sweet 16 six-pack has been built by the guys from Three Men Weep. If Kai went with Houston minus six, Jim Baylor minus seven, Matt Cox, Creighton plus 13. Let me throw it to you, Randall. What do you got? I'm going with Bama Lay in the six and a half against UCLA. Alabama just is too talented right now. UCLA is playing with house money. They've overachieved after losing Chris Smith. Right now, per the action app, 57% of the public is on UCLA. I don't see the vulnerability. I see three-pointers. I see Shackelford. I see John Petty. I see Herb Jones attacking the basket, a deep team that's going to get out and run. And I see a defensive Crimson Tide team that is second per Ken Palm in adjusted defensive efficiency, stifling a limited UCLA offense. Cody Riley's not going to do much inside against his team. Yuzang, Haquez, they're going to have trouble shooting threes. Pressure's going to get to them. Eventually, Alabama goes on the run like they did the other day, and they just extend. I'll take Bama laying the six and a half against the Bruins. Great job, Sweet 16, but it ends here. Yeah, and Primo back, who just adds another shooter on the outside. He had a couple threes and looked good in his return. Colin, where are you going? Yeah, same game, except I'm going to use everything that Randall just said to play into the under, under 146 here, because if Alabama gets any kind of double-digit significant lead, I don't think that they're going to be pressing whatsoever. You get up by 15 or 20, you may just let Mick Cronin run his sub-top 300 tempo-style offense, take 30 seconds off the clock for him just to get a field goal attempt up. Forced turnovers for Bama are way down since the start of the SEC tournament. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Iona, uh, Maryland, Mississippi State, these teams have been able to dictate pace against Alabama. And if Alabama – and Alabama can hold their own on defense. Uh, I, I see some serious matchups for UCLA to try to compete in this game. And if Alabama gets any kind of a lead, I don't think this is going to be fast-paced whatsoever. So I like the under 146. All right, and then I'll finish up. I'll go with Oregon-USC under 139. This uh, – look, talk about it before. They got to 130 when they both shot over 40% from three. I don't think USC is going to shoot the way they did last week. This USC defense is excellent inside this Oregon offense. It's not going to be what we saw against Iowa. They generally play slow. I think this game will be on the slower side. I think both teams are so familiar with each other that they're going to come up with – you're going to see Oregon come up with some good zone and press looks to bother 
the USC perimeter and you know, kind of just make it difficult for them to start the offense and get it inside. Uh, and that USC defense is just playing at another level. Uh, I think this, this total is too high. So we'll go Oregon USC under. All right. That'll do it for us. Thank you for listening. We appreciate all the support. As I said earlier, we'll be back Monday. Episode will probably be out Monday afternoon, going over the elite eight games on Monday night and Tuesday night. Leave a review, subscribe, unsubscribe, tell a friend, tell an enemy, you know, the deal. I got, we'll do giveaways next week. Hit the voicemail if things don't go well this weekend. It's been a hell of a tournament so far. Hope to keep it rolling. Thanks to the guys from Three Man Weave, as always, for joining. And thanks, of course, as always, to Mike Randall and Colin Wilson. Good luck this weekend. You can catch us all on Twitter and on the Action Network app. We'll have tons of content covering every game. Thank you again for listening. We'll catch you all later. Cheers. Peace out. Sweet 16, Pop. We're finished talking.